0: Welcome to the Foresight Active Advantage podcast series. My name is Daniel Grioli and I'm your host. And joining me today is a very special guest, Gavin Davies. He's the chairman of Fulcrum Asset Management. Uh, He's latest in a string of very long and illustrious career moves, which includes being a chief economist at Goldman Sachs and a chair of the BBC as well as advising government in a variety of different roles. Gavin, we're very honoured to have you here on the podcast. Thanks for joining us.
1: It's a pleasure, Daniel.
0: I'd like to find out a little bit more about you before we get on to discussing fulcrum and global macro investing. How did you start as an economist?
1: Um, My now grown-up children would say I was a a nerd at a very (laughs) young age daniel uh so at about 14 or 15 i really started to be very interested in economics which i thought was numerically driven and and statistically driven and i'd always been a cricket stats uh nerd actually um and it kind of translated into economics Um, So I studied economics at Cambridge and at Oxford uh, as a postgrad and was very lucky. I was in the middle of or at the end of a postgrad degree and the the British government changed, surprisingly, in February 1974. The election was won by Harold Wilson out of the blue, very unexpected, And he hadn't really prepared a team of advisors to go into Downing Street. So by a circuitous route, I was invited to join his team of advisors and spent the whole of the five years of that government working in Number 10 uh, as an economic advisor. And I missed my exams
0: as well. (laughs) What a shame. (laughs) All was
1: good in the world.
0: What a shame. So uh I noticed the date you said you started in the early 70s and I couldn't help but think that's uh, a period that some investors may remember as being typified by some very high inflation. Actually I was mm-hmm. I was looking at that Yesterday, and I was looking at a chart of uh, US inflation during the 70s, and it it began around 3% and then got to double digits about the time you started your career in government and then fell back down to 3% and ended the decade above 10 again. So it was a wild ride during that decade. What was it like uh, as an economist to government during that period fighting that inflation?
1: Well, it was frightening, I have to say, because that level of inflation and then the consequences um, for unemployment and for the exchange rate for sterling uh, and for the stability of markets were really drastic. So we knew we had to bring inflation back down, back under control, and we didn't know really how to do it. There was no kind of proven mechanism operating through monetary policy and the central bank. So all of that had to be invented um, in different countries uh, at different times. The person who contributed most to that in the end was Paul Volcker at the Federal Reserve. Um, And we took tiny steps in in Britain uh, to try and do that. But we went down lots and lots of bad paths as well including price controls, that's direct controls over companies' ability to set prices, and wage controls which led to strikes and disruption uh, before we settled on monetary policy as the means to do it. And I think we did make some contributions in the UK. Uh, We figured it out eventually but with a heck of a lot of disruption.
0: We we were talking earlier that uh, your experiences uh, are not shared by economists of more recent generations. No. Do you think that oversight could potentially be costly?
1: <laughs> I certainly hope I hope not. <clears throat> um, but it is it's actually interesting, both with colleagues here at Fulcrum and with our clients, that the younger colleagues aged 40 and below don't have any kind of memory of this very very bad decade in the 1970s uh, which was all really driven by a high inflation episode which was allowed to get out of control so I think they tend to be they tend to make policy judgments and and investment judgments which assume inflation cannot really be a problem whereas economists in my age including many of the central bankers of course of today um, know it can be a problem and are very determined to try to prevent it from becoming embedded in the system
0: we'll have to ask you some more questions about inflation later on so that we can get that uh, mm-hmm. that that perspective that uh, I know I'm lacking I was the reason i was looking at that chart earlier was i was trying to find some good information on that period to sort of study study and and see whether there are some lessons that could be drawn to our current situation because there's this open question about whether the inflation we have now is transitory or something more but uh, we'll we'll chat about that a little bit more later on in the podcast I wanted to ask you during that period uh, who were the interesting people that you got to work with
1: Well the in the UK at the time economic policy including inflation policy was set by politicians and not by central bankers so the key people I would say in the British government were Jim Callaghan who was prime minister Labour prime minister um Dennis Healey who was the Treasury Minister, the Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time. And then, of course, overwhelmingly important was Mrs Thatcher, whom I never worked directly for, but she was very much in the orbit (laughs) that I was observing. And I would say globally, Paul Volcker was the key person. So, you know, what happened between the middle of the 1970s and the middle of the 1980s was that we managed to design a method of setting monetary policy such that inflation could be brought under control. That was not widely believed in the middle of the 1970s, but it worked. Um, and it laid the, the sort of groundwork for the, 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 the centrepiece of economic policy ever since, which is that the central bank should set interest rates and now quantitative easing at a rate that is consistent with 2% average inflation. And that remains, even now, the number one thing that economic policymakers are trying to do.
0: So we discovered the the power and importance of economic policy. So well, roll moneta- forward. Moneta- Sorry, monetary. Sorry, monetary, I should poli- say. Monetary
1: policy, Daniel, yeah. yeah. And there are people, there are, you know, there are economic historians that point to this as a very big uh, realisation which was true, I think, prior to the war as well, prior to the Second mm-hmm. World War, but sort of reawakening to the power of monetary policy and controlling inflation. And let's hope it's still true.
0: Have we had too much of a good thing though?
1: Well, I mean, maybe we have, because the central banks at the moment are saying two, two things about inflation, really. One is that it is high but transitory, And the second is that if they're wrong about the transitory part, then monetary policy can be relatively easily deployed to bring inflation back down again. So the combination of those two things that they're saying sounds a little bit complacent to a person who lived through the 1970s um, because inflation then did not prove transitory and it was very painful to bring it back down again. We're beginning to see some economists now argue that the central bankers are making exactly this mistake. So, for example, Larry Summers, who's one of my favourite economists, um, former Treasury Secretary in the US, is vehemently arguing now that the central banks are making a big mistake and that they should be acting now to head off this transitory rise in inflation. Other Keynesian economists, like Paul Krugman, another of the ones I most admire, thinks the exact opposite. So there's a there's a debate going on among economists who normally agree, actually, from the same school, um, about the nature of this inflation episode. And I think the next six months or more will be the story of how this plays out, and that's what will determine the way markets behave.
0: Are you looking for any particular signposts along the way over the next six months that would sort of tip your view more towards transitory or something more? Are there are things there yeah. you're looking for?
1: Yeah. So there, there are two. And let's focus on the US because obviously the story is probably at its most heightened in the US already. Um, one would be where inflation goes um, in the near term. It's, it's over 6%. That's a big shock, by the way, to the US consumer already. If that goes much higher, then I think the chances that it will trigger wage inflation and become embedded in the system get bigger. So just simply the path for inflation itself is going to be something that everyone is, is watching and is going to become really focused upon, I think, even more. But the other thing that the central bankers are always emphasising is inflation expectations. Because if 6% plus actual inflation turns into 5% expected inflation, then it will become extremely difficult to get that back down again. Um, So from the point of view of the current chairman of the Fed or the governor of the Bank of England or the ECB, it's expected inflation that they're watching most. If that starts to rise further, and it has risen already, then they're much more likely to act, I think.
0: And that mechanism that you described earlier, where inflation starts to show up in wages, based on your experience, how long does that take? Is that something that's quick, or does it take time before it flows through? Well...
1: So I would say there's the experience of the 70s and 80s, and then there's the rest of the period since. So in the 70s, early 80s, the impact on wages happened quite suddenly, actually. Uh, And it was when the the labour market, and in particular in those days the trade unions, suddenly woke up to the fact that there was inflation and that it would persist and that it was eating into living standards. And then pretty rapidly, over a matter of a couple of quarters, um, wage settlements jumped considerably and were very, very difficult (coughs) to bring bring back down. Um, Even with statutory wage limits set by the government, it was very, very difficult, impossible to bring back down uh, easily. Since, however, uh, let's say the mid-1980s, It's taken a very long time and hardly fed into wages at all. And I think the reason has been that when prices start to creep up and inflation starts to rise, the labour market doesn't see it as a permanent thing. So, you know, for example, the three or four (laughs) oil shocks we've seen over the last few decades um, never really fed into wages. So... It can happen without a problem. And at the moment, I have to say that the wage increases that we're seeing are not that big, actually. So on balance, I would say that the central banks are justified in being cautious about tightening monetary policy. But it's beginning to push a bit at the limits, I have to say. And certainly in the UK, the Bank of England was extremely close to raising interest rates last month, could well do it next month. Probably not in the United States. They're probably still 6 to 12 months away. But the debate is moving now, Daniel. The debate is moving yes. towards earlier, bigger action by several of the major central banks, not including the ECB, but the the more inflation-prone governments not governments, central banks, are beginning to consider this a lot more seriously than they were. And they're under more pressure from what I count as really admirable, right-minded economists, um, (laughs) correct thinking, I don't mean right-wing economists, correct thinking economists, um, to, to, to consider action on the grounds that if they delay too long, it will become a lot
0: more difficult. Yeah, we're seeing that that uh, tension between the central bank and markets here in Australia because the central bank is saying it's not going to raise rates until twenty twenty four, and yeah. the market has a rate rise priced in for the middle of next year. So yeah, yeah, there's a and difference actually, of opinion there.
1: Australia is an example of where the central bank can kind of lose control over the market a bit in terms of market expectations, and I think that. Once you've done that, especially if you're the Federal Reserve because you're the central bank for the world, really, um, you have to worry then because you have to surprise the markets with your actions in order to, you know, bring them back to the path that you want them to believe in. Um, and it's not easy to do that. Once once the central bank has lost its its power of control over expectations for interest rates, that, that's a bad place for the central bank to be. They're not there yet in the big central banks, but they could get there.
0: One thing I've been hearing a lot about, and I'm not sure if it's the case in the UK, and I'm, I'm just wondering whether or not it fits in with this uh, possibility of wage-driven inflation, is the great resignation I've heard it called, yeah. where yeah, people yeah. are just quitting their jobs. And you know, to me, after having had various lockdowns and economic disruptions for two years, uh, you'd think people would be quitting because they they like their chances of finding a better job, perhaps mm. a, a better paying job. And does that mean that there is going to be some of that wage pressure that you were talking about? Is, is that a, a tip-off that that could be coming or are that Two things totally unrelated.
1: Yeah, I think this is a really un- this is a big issue which I don't think is yet really fully understood. Um, and an interesting, you know, development in the UK is that what was called the furlough scheme in the UK, which um, supported employers in the pandemic to hold on to their labour force, has stopped now. So what we're about to see is the consequences of that. Are those people going to become unemployed and search for jobs? Or are they going to become unemployed and choose to remain unemployed? um, Or are they going to stay in their original jobs? And we don't know the answer yet to all of those things. So we're, and in the US is true too. So we're a little bit in 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 a quandary about whether the great resignation which is happening by the way is going to lead to a permanent shrinkage of the labor force and if it does do that then the chances of a bigger impact on wages um, and actually um, a lower level of potential output in the economy those worries would get more significant Um, In the US, it's interesting to look at the makeup of the labour market. A lot of people seem to be leaving the labour market, so the great resigners tend to be 55 years old and above. They appear to be opting for retirement, and I don't know that they're going to come back, you know. It could take a long time to persuade them and a lot of higher wages to persuade them to re-enter the labour market. And if they don't, then the economy has shrunk in terms of its potential output because more people have essentially stopped working. And that could be one of the long-term bad consequences of the pandemic. And it could also be inflationary
0: as well. And I'm guessing too that the disruption to travel, because this is something that we've seen here in Australia, because we've largely had our borders closed for two years to the rest of the world, the, disrupt- the disruption to travel means you can't bring new workers in either.
1: Well, and also in some countries, obviously, there is increased regulatory control over migration. Most countries are kind of moving in that direction, I would say, in, in the developed countries. Um, so the safety valve that has been the case in the major European economies of being able to bring in workers from uh, Emerging countries at lower wages than the indigenous workers are willing to work That safety valve is looking more problematic as well. I would say in the UK. That's a big deal because in the UK Brexit has caused a lot of EU workers to return home and has closed the door on Incoming EU workers at the same time and that is causing wage uh, pressure and labor market shortages employment shortages Especially in service industries. We're feeling that very very significantly So there do seem to be a number of inflationary uh, Issues developing at the same time like they like they developed in the 1970s They're not all connected in the 1970s, oil prices were not directly connected to wages. I mean, they in, indirectly, yes, but not directly. Um, but they all happened at the same time, and we are beginning to see that happening now to a lesser extent, but this is still early. And as I said, what, what I'm hoping is that we know more about how to to stop it than we knew then. We were We had our learner plates on, in driver ter- terminology uh, on the car in the 1970s, and maybe we are, with that memory, a little bit better at controlling it this time. We'll see.
0: Let's hope so. Let's hope so. So at the end of your period working with government, which I believe was the late 70s you finished yep. up with the government, yep. you went on to to join Goldman Sachs and uh, and work your way up there to become chief global economists. Yeah. So what was it like working for Goldman Sachs? would have been a, a culture shift, I'm guessing, from government.
1: <laughs> yeah, a good one, by the way. Uh, it was a good culture shift. Goldman in those days was still a small investment bank outside of the U.S. It was big in the U.S. and big by then in the bond market in the U.S., Um but was still really trading international instruments mainly for American indigenous clients who wanted to trade those instruments. And as I, more or less when I joined, as I was joining Goldman, Goldman decided to really internationalize properly um, and become an indigenous player in all the major markets in the world. And in all the asset classes as well, in bonds, obviously in currencies, in equities, investment banking, asset management. So it was a fascinating time where I watched, in my mind, the best investment bank um, coming to markets that I was somewhat expert in. And that was, again, a very lucky thing for me, I think. And it, it enabled me to make a contribution to the firm quicker than otherwise I would have been able to do it was a very intense place it is still by the way that hasn't lost that it had and has I think a culture all of its own um, culture of excellence and hard work and focus on the bottom line of Goldman Sachs so you know it, one of its secrets is that it's able to bring people doing different things in very different markets together to focus on the good of the firm. Even now, the firm is gigantic. I think Goldman has done that. Um, and so I have nothing but admiration for the time I spent there. It was a, it probably is, you know, the formative part of my professional life and will remain so. Um, and I'm very proud to have been part of Goldman.
0: It sounds like a, a great experience. It was. I'd, I'd love to ask you as an insider uh, if your perspective on this. So I read a great book uh, called, I think it was called The Partnership uh, by Charlie Ellis. and yes. it's, it's the history of Goldman Sachs. Yes, and one of the things that I came away with after reading that book was this very strong impression that Goldman changed from there was there was a partnership period and a publicly listed company period. Yeah, and and the business was quite different. And I I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you your career spanned both periods.
1: Yeah, I left about four years after we did our IPO, so I. I was a little bit in the um, public company period, but I was a lot more in the partnership period. And Charlie Ellis, who, who you mentioned there, was a big fan of Goldman throughout, but I think especially during the partnership. So I think you may have got the impression from that book that things changed fundamentally. I mean, they did, but slowly. And I would say the main thing that changed was scale, actually. Because we did the IPO in part to enable us to expand uh, more rapidly to grow our capital base, which until then had been owned by us, the partners, directly, Um, and we thought we needed more permanent capital in the company. We we thought we may need to uh, acquire companies as well, which was easier with a the um, ammunition given by the share price. Um, So that's why we did it. The scale did change very, very significantly. The firm is, you know, very significantly bigger now in in all aspects than it was 20 years ago. Um, Some people think it is less client-oriented than it used to be. Some people think it is less risk-averse Although we, did, we took some pretty big risks as a partnership too, I must say, in markets. Uh, I think legitimate risks, but we definitely took
0: them. Well, um, it seemed to be a firm that was always uh, run by somebody who'd spent time on a trading desk. So well, there always it seemed to be a res- yeah. risk taker at the top.
1: Yes. Of course, Goldman has another unique feature, which is generally speaking, two leaders in every business, if not three. Um, and somehow people outside look at that and think, you're crazy, you can't have two CEOs, but we did. We had two senior partners frequently, and on the whole they were one from the trading division and one from the banking division, i.e. the corporate um, part of the business, the corporate uh, finance part of the business, and they, they coalesced to run both sides of the firm. After we went public, for a long time, I would say, the trading side of the business grew quicker and we became more of a trading-dominated firm. Um, And then after 2008, it went back towards balance again as the trading divisions found it harder to maintain their previous growth uh, because the market had changed. Mm -hmm. But I would say that the, I was going to say that the thing that I still notice about Goldman above all else really, the culture didn't change. So even though the firm became bigger, that culture of, in my mind, excellence and hard work and one firm was sustained. Now, other people on the outside think. We're kind of greedy and, you know, we throw our weight around and stuff.
0: I'm thinking of some of the quotes like (laughs) vampire squid and calling your clients muppets and some of the things like that.
1: I don't recognize any of those things. That's not my Goldman Sachs. Um, um, But, yes, some people do see that aspect, I must admit.
0: Very good. So I have to ask you, I have to put you on the spot here. What were some of your better and worse calls as an economist at Goldman Sachs? Any oh, stick out?
1: The um, I, I, some of, you know, I mean, some of some of the misreads that I've made in markets are just embarrassing, Daniel. Um, let me I, let me pick a couple of policy things though, because it's it's kind of one all, one for me and one for the one against, um, and they're both about exchange rates and the exchange rate mechanism. In the late 80s and the beginning of the 90s, a very big issue in the United Kingdom was, should we join the exchange rate mechanism of the EU as a prelude to the single currency? And I was in favour and argued in favour. Um, And it ended in absolute disaster. Uh, We joined at the wrong level. We tried to protect our membership when there was a run on the pound that could not be, uh, you know, handled. Interest rates briefly went to 15% to try to protect sterling. And the system, we had to leave the system in a very painful (coughs) devaluation, which the government didn't recover from. So I felt definitely bruised by that. That was a big call in the wrong direction in terms of policy with some consequences for markets too but I feel slightly redeemed because a decade later when we had to decide the UK had to decide whether to join the single currency by that stage and the single central bank the ECB I was not in favour of that and I think that was the right judgement because I think if we had joined the single currency before the uk economy was ready to do so meaning before it had integrated and converged more with the european union economy that would have that really would have created a catastrophic uh, problem where there probably would have been the need to break up sterling from the single currency but the process of doing that would have been much, much greater than it was for the ERM and much more painful. Um, so I think that was the right decision. A lot of pro-Europeans, pro-EU British people don't agree with me. But I I think we had learned, I, I anyway feel I had learned, from the e r m mistake in the nineties not to join the single currency until Britain was ready to join properly, and we never it, as it turned out we never became ready to join
0: it's It's interesting to hear you describe that sort of evolution in your thinking over time, and I guess that's really what what we all try to do as investors is try to learn and evolve take our thinking forward so it's I- interesting to hear uh a personal example from you.
1: I, the first I, part. The first part I have to say was bruising because, in terms of a very major policy initiative that I was on the wrong side of, that was one of the ones I feel bad about, and um, I hope I learned from it.
0: That's the very famous uh, George Soros, Stan Druckenmiller trade, isn't it?
1: Exactly. They learned the right lesson, which was it was not going (laughs) to last. Although, you know, you've got to admire them for taking that risk, but I thought the way they described it was too political, personally,
0: but anyway. So I want to ask you a little bit about the differences now from – Goldman Sachs to Fulcrum because being an economist uh, in a, a large firm, you're, you know, you're offering an opinion of you on the markets, asset classes, you know, to then becoming an asset manager where you're responsible for a, a P&L. Uh, so there's, there's a, a very different focus yeah. in what you do. Uh, what was it like shifting from Goldman Sachs economist to global macro investor?
1: Well, obviously, I mean, you can't compare the two firms, right? So, uh, I mean, I wish we could. <laughs> but, <laughs> maybe one day. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, you know, maybe not in my lifetime, uh, Daniel. But uh, no, I suppose my role did has changed somewhat. But I, I don't see it quite in the way that you that you described there. I've always been clearly an economist, not a trader or or a or an investment manager, an invest uh, a, tri- a puller of the trigger on investments, and I did that at Goldman, and I've done that at Fulcrum too. Um, I see the role of the economics group, both in Goldman in those days and now at Fulcrum, to be providing the research and thinking. That supports the trading decisions and the um, and the asset management decisions. And I didn't try to shift from being a professional economist to being a trader or a risk taker. I di- I did not try that. Um, and I don't believe that I would have I would be very good at that. I think it's a it's a different skill. Um, but what I do think works best in my observation over a long period of time in in different markets, is when the research um, and the trading decisions combine to form a judgment, um, I think it's more likely to be right when both of those skill sets come together. And the traders are more likely to take bigger and more uh convinced positions in the market when that's true and that's the role i think for the economics group it's not it's not to tell our senior risk taker that they should be selling equities i i don't think that's our role
0: so if i understand you correctly you've never stopped being economist you've just switched your clients your client Uh, is now an internal group of uh yeah, I mean, that's one, way of looking,
1: that's one way of looking at it. Of course, our ultimate clients are the people who invest in our funds,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and those are the people to whom we owe our responsibility. But internally, within Fulcrum and within Goldman, we took decisions with the economics group thinking somewhat separately from the trading and risk-taking groups, and then the two came together not to take a joint decision because I think that's that is a bad idea. I think it should be clear who is taking the investment decision, but they, in my opinion, need to be informed as well as possible by research. This isn't just economics, by the way. This is this is company research and bond research as well. Um, and I I've always believed that the research function is somewhat different and requires a different skill set. From the trading function and the risk-taking mm-hmm. function and that's best understood uh, and if you do understand that and both sides believe that then things can work a lot of economists have always hankered after being traders and taking risk in markets uh, not not always successfully sometimes but but not always successfully and um, I don't think many traders want to be economists, actually, but
0: <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> you you reminded me of uh, a very famous economist, uh, Lord Keynes, who uh, he started out trying to be an investor, didn't do so well at first, uh, oh, as a, mm. but in the end, he got there.
1: Well, you know, Lord Keynes, of course, believed different things through his career, both about macroeconomic policy and about investing he he was early in a few things I mean getting the King's endowment into equities was actually pretty early in the 1920s Mm. out of real estate into equities big success Um, but he didn't get out before the, the great crash and concluded from that that you shouldn't try to time markets. Economists can't. He, he said, time markets. Um, and then he became a stock selector, and he was very successful at doing that um, and took big risks in individual stocks. I couldn't, by the way, do that, but that's that's what Lord Keynes, turns out, could do. And, of course, by trying at least three different approaches, he found one that worked for
0: him. <laughs> Well, it's good that he, he didn't give up. I, I remember reading a letter he wrote uh, because he, he had a few different positions. He had the the King's College, which you mentioned, but he also uh, served as an advisor or a board member, I forget which, to a couple of insurance companies. Mm-hmm. And in these letters he was lamenting that the insurance companies wouldn't leave him alone to do what he did at King's College and he yeah. he, he couldn't yeah, get no. the same results.
1: Yeah, no, actually, as as King's Bursa, well, he wasn't, I don't think he was Bursa. He was working for the King College Bursa. Uh, he was given free reign to run the endowment as he chose. And over the 20 years he did it, uh, roughly from 1920 to 1940, it was a big success, actually. So to be fair to the great man, uh, as usual.
0: He, he came back in the second half.
1: He fig- He figured <laughs> it out. He figured yes. it out. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I think even his own personal account, because uh if I remember correctly, he got wiped out personally and had to loan money from friends. Yeah. But made it all back.
1: I think he went into the nineteen twenty nine thirty one crash, long equities, um, probably mm. levered as well. I don't I, I'm not sure that that's true, but I think it may have been. Uh and and got and got dented. But he was a man who was hard to dent, actually. Yes, uh, so he rebounded very very, very well
0: and good for him so i want I want to get your perspective on a couple of quotes about economics as a discipline because um, I think it's interesting to reflect on what economics is good for and what it might not be good for and how it can help and i 'm hoping these quotes might might help us explore that idea so the first quote comes from a, a book that I found very interesting, written by Humphrey Neal, and it's called The Art of Contrary Thinking. Mm-hmm. And he was one of the, the first uh, American investors to popularize the idea of contrarian analysis. And this is the, the quote. It's, he says, It's not that many are proven wrong in their analysis, but that they may may be proven wrong because of their influence. They may so affect operations and plans of businesses and of the public that their forecasts fail to prove out. Collective action from united predictions often pushes the pendulum too far in one direction, thus upsetting the timing and momentum previously expected. Mm.
1: So I think that's a warning against groupthink, um, and it, I think in markets it's a it is actually a very accurate warning because <coughs> piling into stuff that everyone else believes almost can't work in markets. You know, you you've got to be aware that that you need to. Watch out for a trade that everybody's already in and about to change their mind on, and, and you mustn't be late. You shouldn't be. Try- you should really try not to be late into those trades. So I guess that's what he had in mind. Um, for me, the sort of contrary conclusion that you should always be contrarian is also not right, though. Yes. Um, because contrarian traders have a different pattern of PL. They tend to make a long run of losses followed by some very big gains, much shorter period of very big gains. Whereas momentum traders, and this this is most macro people really, um, make a long run of gains and then if they overstay their welcome, a large loss at the end. So you you've you've got a you've got to try to avoid both those pitfalls. And, of course, that is market timing, and that is extremely difficult. But we have to kind of try that, because if we don't time markets, we might as well just own passive exposure to the world asset markets and uh, you know, live like that. We, we are not trying to do that, although we do realise markets are hard to beat. That is for sure.
0: Yes, yes, you make a very good point there that the the market as a whole is right most of the time. So you yeah, being it a contrarian is. for the sake of being a contrarian uh, is just going to get you in trouble. It's only those few points when things get to an extreme uh, where it, it can work in your favor.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd rather, it, if if you talk to the really great macro traders, you know, the last three decades who've made a huge amount of money, trading macro um, for themselves and their clients, they tend to have somewhat similar trading style. I mean, Stan Druckenmiller has, has has repeatedly said what his trading style is, which is to hold a strong opinion, but hold it lightly, lightly meaning... I bel- I'm quite convinced now, but if the market tells me I'm wrong, I lose. You know, I begin to lose confidence in my own ability to beat the market. But if the market agrees with me over the next few months, then increase the size of the position, probably through the options market. So you're controlling your downside risk and build a big position in things where you are convinced and where the market is still supporting you. And I think that is how many not all by any means of the great macro investors tend to invest it's It's that order of play firm a convinced opinion, but watch the market carefully to because it 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 will it will really punish you if you ignore it that yes. is for sure
0: I, I always chuckle watching uh Stan. Interviewed on uh, outlets like CNBC because they'll ask him how he's positioned and he'll describe his portfolio and then straight away follow with, but don't listen to me because I'm probably going to change my mind next week.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's alarming actually. The very great macro traders will persuade you on Tuesday that something is clearly true. And then on Wednesday, they're selling it. <laughs> they're doing the exact opposite because they've realized something else is clearly true and I, I don't really literally mean change their minds overnight but I think economists probably should spend longer holding the same view if possible yes. than some of the great macro traders do They they, they definitely change their minds uh, frequently so
0: so on this theme of macro, uh, tell us a little bit about what led you to co-found Fulcrum.
1: Well, two of us were leaving Goldman at the same time, myself and Andrew Stevens, co-founder of Fulcrum, Um, and we wanted to um, build a firm that we hoped would be excellent, managing assets with a, a macro theme. Not, not always macroeconomics or macro, global macro um, uh, uh, strategies, but with a kind of macro overview. And Andrew had been a very successful um, money manager in Goldman, and I'd been Goldman chief economist, and we thought we could work together well, and, and that that is what has happened. And we've done many different types of things at Fulcrum. Um, but we are, we've arrived at a point where we think our sort of key strength is to build investment approaches based loosely around a macro kind of understanding of the world. Uh, and that's unusual, actually. Most, most uh, asset managers don't have that. We think we can attract very good people to work with that vision in mind, um, and I suppose if we have a USP, that is it. Um, and we've built a business that is growing, and so far, so good.
0: Yes, it's uh, it's it's grown very well, and you have some some excellent strategies in um, in, in multi asset and in climate and other areas, which we'll talk a little bit about uh, later in the podcast. How would you describe the firm's philosophy, you know, your your approach to markets and how they work?
1: Well, I th- I mean, num- the the number one word actually I I would use that I hope all the people that are that are working at, at uh, Fulcrum would recognise is humility in the face of markets, and you know. We are not people who think it's easy to manage money in markets. There are very large numbers of other extremely able people doing this. And the market price is a kind of referee that that sorts out all of those opinions. Um, And you've got to be able, therefore, to do better than the amalgamation of all that talent. And that is not easy. And I think the moment you think it's easy uh, and the moment you think it's like golf, the moment you think you've got the, you finally found the secret of golf and you can whack it 320 yards down the middle, you're about to do a triple bogey, honestly. So humility in the face of markets, I think it is one. I, I do hope excellence is a feature of what we do. Um, our, our economics group now is far more excellent than I ever was in in many, many, many ways of being an economist, in the academic work they do, in the econometric work they do.
0: Do you put uh, that down to anything in particular?
1: We When we started to... <coughs> <clears throat> when we started to build our, our economics group, I suppose that was 15 years ago, really. Um, we initially started with some Goldman people who we had worked with at Goldman. And they came proven because we knew exactly how they would function. Um, and they're s- still with us, actually, many of those. Um the ones that have joined us have tended to join us from central banks on the whole interestingly so not from competitors in the markets the economics group that is and therefore they are people who are trained in what they would think of and I would think of as really you know proper economics economics that can that can influence other economists as well as understand markets um And we have outstanding people um, that have wanted to work in the financial markets but want to apply their skills as pretty serious economists to those markets. Um, And I think if we have a particular sort of USP, that that might be one of the ways of
0: defining it. Mm Mm-hmm. Can can you give us a, a feel for some of the things that the economics team is working on, some of the ideas you're researching, some of the tools you may have built? Yeah. I know you use, for example, um, nowcasting yeah. in some of your so, work. So nowcasting
1: is a, is, a, is a kind of specific term about an approach, an econometric approach, um, which has come out of – um, new developments in the last 20 years in, in econometrics which enable us to take very large amounts of data with different durations and different endpoints and produce as an, single estimate of whatever it is that you're seeking to estimate. So, for example, global economic activity. Obviously, there's a zillion different... Uh, series that can help you do that what these systems do is actually daily believe it or not they give you a what we think is the single best judgment of where economic activity is today measured as a uh, as a growth rate over a month say Um, and we couldn't really do that some years ago so one of the issues that we always had some years ago was to try to understand what the starting point was for the forecast so you know even before we made a forecast we had to argue for weeks on what is today's state of play and then the forecast would just reflect that really actually Um, so now we've tried to get that part better in so far as we can I think we've moved away from the sort of big macro modeling that is done by the IMF and, you know, the Fed with very large econometric models, because we haven't found that very useful. I think that kind of forecasting is very good in the middle of the economic cycle when you don't need it, right? (laughs) So, you know, when you don't need to be told that in the middle of an expansion, the growth rate will be 3% next year, that's when, the, that's when that type of model will tell you exactly that. But it isn't so good at picking a big turning point. And there, there are probably other ways that we're trying to develop of, of doing that and understanding that quicker. In the pandemic, that came really to the fore because there was a sudden, massive change in economic activity imposed by um, by lockdowns. And we couldn't pick that up very easily or at all from official data of any kind, because the official data was lagging a month or two behind, and in a very big dislocation like that, that is too long. So we started to... To use daily information from alternative sources, credit card information, for example, um, Google searches—very big new source of information at that stage—and um, other other items of daily information we could find. So, actually, the nowcast became very short term because the really big issue was: um, is the U.S. econ has the U.S. economy shrunk by? 25% or 15%. Now you wouldn't believe would you that you didn't know where the level of US GDP was within 10 percentage points at any given time. But we did It's a
0: huge margin, yeah.
1: I know, honestly, it was like alarming, right? So things of that nature we've tried to develop since the pandemic, since we've settled down again, we're still using those things. So the state of, you know, consumer sentiment on a very, very frequent basis, etc. Um, built, we hope, with as much econometric skill as we can. Um, my team has published in very, you know, the leading economic journals in the world, the American Economic Review and and many others. And We have a leader for the team, um, Juan Antolin Diaz, who is absolutely outstanding by any standards and you know, among the best people I've ever worked with throughout my life. So, you know, we've got good people doing this. Um, they're serious about it. And I think that's another thing I would say. If you're not willing to do this 100% of with 100% of your effort and ability, you won't succeed because there's some other guy out there or girl out there, woman out there, who will do it a hundred percent and you you've really got to be you've got to be willing to love it you know otherwise you you won't be the best at it
0: well it sounds like you do given that you uh, <laughs> you started your journey with statistics back as a 14 year old
1: <laughs> yeah I still love cricket more mind you but there you go <laughs>
0: Well, uh, Australia won the World Cup last night. Uh,
1: Sorry, so, and it was only the T20 World Cup. Come on. Wow, we'll, uh, not we'll, we'll not take pro- it.
0: We'll take Let's it. it. Let's I know, it's pajama, Daniel, cricket. Daniel, it's Daniel, pajama it's not, cricket. It's pajama cricket, I
1: know. It's not, the, it's not the proper stuff. On the <laughs> other hand, I'm not going to be around for the ashes this winter. I'm not going to watch that because uh, that is the proper stuff and I've got a nasty feeling. <laughs> well, it, it's... Could- you guys could play that as well, by the way. I'm worried about it.
0: <laughs> it. It's good that maybe we can use some cricket analogies because usually when you hear American investors, it's all baseball and, you know, fat, know fat pitches and hitting over no, the plates. I and...
1: no, I no idea what they're talking about. No idea at all.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we can talk cricket. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Very good. So – Coming back to, uh, to Fulcrum, uh, I was thinking when you were talking about the now casting and some of the things that you're working on, they're obviously very data intensive. They, you know, yeah. uh, they probably have like a, a machine learning angle to them. Does that mean that the proverbial three men in a Bloomberg just can't make money anymore? Is, is it yeah. now at a point where you need to have this industrial-scale tech Machinery you behind need,
1: you? You know, I, I think you need the tech. There was a period there where the 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 PC on your desk was really pretty good, actually. And the, there definitely was a period where you could build a macro model of quite a big economy like the U.S. on, on your desk uh, e- relatively easily. Um, I think the data intensity of it has gone up now, so it's harder to do that. And my my econometricians think that a you know a weapon in their favor is the i. t. department that enables them to estimate things more quickly, because you know, believe it or not, it can take a day or two to estimate the results of some of these models. Well, you can't tell the market to freeze while you're deciding whether the non-farm payroll was good or bad, right? Mm -hmm. The market is not going to listen if you say, please stop while my model tunters in the background. Um, So they do think that it's important and uh, it's becoming more important. And I certainly think for systematic methods of managing money, the IT backing and the computer backing you've got and the ability to to work in the cloud, has become a lot more significant. So it is tending, I think, to favour bigger entities that can afford that degree of technology, actually. But in terms of human beings, I'm not sure you need it. I've never thought you need a massive team of human beings in, in, in macro-style investing. I think anything more than, I'm going to say, one to two dozen people actually doing it can be very confusing and you can start arguing with each other instead of arguing with the market which is what you should be doing
0: do you do you think uh, there needs to be a a human element or yes do you think I there do. needs to be a human element not purely systematic
1: yes i do so this is this is the fashion on this it changes all the time right i mean Go back to the 90s, it was nearly all not quite discretionary human. Um, Then models were built that seemed to be doing well, systematic models, um, momentum-based, a lot of them. Um, CTA models were doing well. And there was a new fashion, which was, I want the model and I don't want human judgment on top of it because the human will panic at exactly the wrong moment.
0: Um, it's ah, like the the,
1: right.
0: the joke about the portfolio manager, the dog and the computer. Have you heard that one? No. Go so, on. So you need the computer to run the portfolio, the portfolio manager to feed the dog, and the dog to bite the portfolio manager if he tries <laughs> to touch the computer.
1: There you go. So <laughs> that that was believed very widely, I think. I think now – so here's my view at the moment. I think that the dichotomy between systematic and human discretion is less than it was, actually. I think many – and we certainly are trying to really diminish that gap. So we're trying to have models that inform human decisions and have humans that can see things that models are not necessarily seeing and can judge when um, the model just hasn't been able in its past life to see stuff. So one example of that actually at the moment, we're trying to build systems that enable us to hedge inflation risk. And the team has come back to us and said, you know, one of the problems here is that there hasn't really been a period in the last 30 years where the markets have had to, react to a serious risk of inflation so we don't have the same data sets that we normally would have now they've still built the models but when we use those models we are aware that they're not necessarily as reliable and may need more human judgment than some of the other stuff we do where there is 30 years of daily data So we're trying our best to make our systems, not our systems, our process uh, an amalgamation of the best of both of these things. Now, we've said that before, it's hard to do, um, but I think we're making some progress actually on this.
0: That's that's interesting to hear your perspective of the, the importance of the two. And in your answer, I couldn't help but notice you describing uh, CTAs, and you know, a lot of investors think of CTAs in some ways as a close cousin of global macro. Yeah. How would you describe the similarities and the differences between the two strategies? Well,
1: we've run, C- run CTA-type strategies and we've run discretionary macro-type strategies. Um, so there are some similarities, Daniel, and I would say that one is that they trade the same instruments. I mean, basically, you know, those the CTA and the discretionary macro person, they're trading about two hundred kind of instruments, futures uh, and 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 cash instruments, and those are the instruments and commodities and currencies, and those are the um, those are the instruments that CTAs trade as well. Um, but and another similarity is that. Uh, most discretionary macro traders whether they will admit it or not do have some element of momentum built into their process right and the reason is that's worked over a long period of time so and that is exactly what the CTAs do you know for a living themselves but that's those are the two similarities the big the big difference is that the CTAs don't try to have any kind of fundamental view of what's happening in the world or the markets or the economies. They are solely, in general, this is, price-driven, right? So they don't know that the Fed is meeting next week and they don't know that there have been tariffs imposed on US-China trade. or They don't know any of that. They say, who cares? I get all my information from the price. And that is really, really different from discretionary macro. It is almost completely the polar opposite. So, yes, there are some similarities, but I think it's completely wrong, actually, to see them as alternatives, um, where you have to have one or the other, because they're going to give you a very different return stream and risk stream, I believe, from each other.
0: Okay. Thank you for bringing out that nuance because I, I've seen a lot of investors in terms of how they think of a, I say, a multi asset portfolio allocation, you know, they'll create an alternatives part of their portfolio and they'll often think of having, you know, one or the other within yeah. that alternatives because they see them sort of as both diversifiers against equity risk, which is well, the main risk a, in their portfolio
1: that's not a bad idea right so i i do think they can both diversify from equity risk but they're also di- i i honestly look look at their track records they are also different from each other too or certainly can be at key times so they can they can give you the advan- they can both give you the advantage of diversify- diversifying your main risk in the in the portfolio your equity risk but they won't do it at the same moment by the same amount, so they're not doing it exactly the same way by any means.
0: Sure. Uh, global macro strategies had this fantastic tailwind mm. several decades ago of higher interest rates because your your default, your do-nothing position gave you a decent return, um, and that has obviously eroded over the time to a point where you, you earn next to nothing on, on your um, risk-free investments. How has that impacted global macro? And okay, if, if rates rise in the future, what might that mean for the performance of global macro strategies?
1: Well, I, so I agree with you. I think high rates in the past did favour global macro strategies. And, by the way, a lot of other hedge fund strategies. If we're talking about global macro here as a hedge fund strategy, yes, which I yeah. would say is only part of, mm-hmm. and not a big part, actually, it's a relatively small part of of, of global macro. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we're talking about the hedge funds, then I think you're definitely right there, Daniel, that it did help. But it helped, especially and in particular, because rates were trending downwards and many macro traders were always long the front end. So whenever the front end rate, forward rate, spiked upwards, the global macro guy would say, "Well, look, the long term trend here is downwards. So I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to bet that the trend will reassert itself and rates will fall." So I think all of that came together to give the global macro trader a good period for sure. Um, What would happen if rates rose, I suppose, you know, if they rise more than to the equilibrium rate, so they're now above what we call our star, the same process may restart. Um, um, What happens between now and then uh, depends on whether you judge the rise in rates correctly, right? Because the dangerous period is between the current and the higher rate equilibrium we might move to that's that's a difficult period for all markets not just for global macro but you're definitely right that now global macro has to work harder to earn alpha that is market returns uh, returns in excess of what the market gives you from the asset classes than it probably did when interest rates were higher so I agree with that.
0: Okay, uh, another question that people uh, often ask of global macro strategies is that uh, back in the history you had some fairly, maybe this is a, a poor choice of words, but you had some fairly large, obvious trades. For example, the the convergence trade for European currencies, and. These mm-hmm. trades were, 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 were big, they are in liquid markets, you know, every macro manager could sort of get on these trades and, and ride it all the way up to what was a fairly certain outcome. And, the, you know, the the question that people have now is these sorts of big, obvious trades, they don't seem to be around as much now and, and they're wondering, I guess, whether that impacts the performance of global macro. Is, it, is that a fair question or...?
1: Well, we certainly did benefit from some of those trades, that is for sure. But one of my little rules in markets is things are a heck of a lot more obvious ex-post than <laughs> they are ex-ante, right? Yes. So all of the obvious things that didn't happen, we've forgotten all about because, you know, yeah, of course. we don't want to think about those. And the things that did happen, we think are obvious. Right? Yes. Uh, So there's this massive hindsight bias in determining what's obvious or not. I I really do believe that. Those trades, having lived through those trades, um, had many periods of going in the wrong direction and people not believing them, people uh, hedging against the tail risk that the politicians would change their minds and that eating up a lot of the returns. So they were easier... In retrospect, than they are than than they were actually when you were living through them. Um, So, yes, in part, I would say to that one. Now, whether or not such things will reassert themselves, I mean, who knows? But I would expect they will. The pandemic was one of them, actually, and a lot of global macro players had a terrific time during the initial period of recovery from the pandemic because they read two things correctly one the pandemic drove everything and policy responses to it a true macro event where one thing drove everything right Uh, and secondly that the output losses would not be sustained and thirdly actually that the change in the fed at the end of march last year was so profound that it would rescue the system. Now, those were three good perceptions by more by macro people than others, I, I would argue. And a lot of money was made by a lot of people in, in in picking those up. So, yes, some of those old trades look more obvious now than they did at the time, but we can have huge macro dislocations you know in the future as well and i'm absolutely sure we will and with the with the global economy still globalizing really i mean you know okay there's been a problem with supp- global um, supply chains but we're still really globalizing you would think a lot more of the shocks are actually going to impact all markets and therefore be more suited for macro thinking than for other types of uh, investment management mm-hmm.
0: On this topic of macro thinking, would you describe that as, or or how would you describe it? How would you explain what macro thinking really is for you? Hmm.
1: Okay, so I don't think it has to be economic thinking, right? I I think macro means that one or a few major forces are moving a lot of things in the in the financial markets. That's what I count as macro. Usually that's economics because, usually, you know, the big economic things like the Fed changing policy or the pandemic or, or Trump's tariffs or a big fiscal change by Biden, Those those things are the things that are big enough, right, to change markets. But so is war. War war you know, a war, a conflict, politics. Um, they can all change markets as well. It's just that I happen to know more about the economic ones, and therefore <laughs> I tend to think that it's the economic ones that, that, that are the most important. But I think to be macro, they have to affect a lot of different markets through one thing that you seek to understand. And in the old days we used to think macro, global macro is more about uh, interest rates and currencies, really. That's what it's about. The last decade it's also become about equities. Now, you know, the great Stan Druckermiller said the other day, that's a shame because as a as a expert in as a trader in currencies and, and bonds, he's triple A. And as a trader in equities, he's only B minus. I think he's a bit better than B (laughs) minus. I think (laughs) he's being modest. (laughs) (laughs) Unusually modest for Stan. Uh, But uh, no, he's triple A and everything. But you can see what he means, though, can't you? That it's taken us into fields that are not as familiar, actually. And there's more complication because there's more component parts, there's more companies with specific company stories that can sort of make the macro signal more confused. But I do think the last decade has been, to a large extent, about central bank reducing rates, quantitative easing, boosting equities, right? And if you were going to ignore that, you weren't picking up that big macro trend. Um, and and that I do count as macro. So it can be in equities, but usually in the past it's been more in currencies and bonds.
0: Do you think that presents a challenge in terms of how your clients uh, might use you in their portfolio? And by that what I mean is if they're looking at, if they're looking for global macro to diversify their equity risk, which most mm-hmm. multi-asset portfolios they've got probably sixty to seventy percent allocated to equities, but their risk mm-hmm. allocation is probably ninety ninety-five percent. Yeah. So if they're looking for you to give them something away from that, but then you're kind of having to deal with that because that's where the central bank is effectively. It's the central bank's turning that into the only game in town through their policy in some ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does that then make it hard for your clients to, you know, how do they put you in your portfolio? How do they deal with those sorts of issues?
1: Well, I think definitely yes, Daniel, if you lose as much money as equities when they go down. I mean, that, Mm -hmm. you know, that is absolutely for sure. So I think that when clients look at diversifying out of equities into any form of macro, Uh, um, activity they don't want you to be fully exposed to equities and that's it because they can get that usually cheaper in in other places and they can get in their minds perhaps better stock selection as well perhaps Um, so they don't really want you to do that they would like you to not participate in very big drawdowns for equities and they would like you to participate to some extent in bull markets Um, and then how well you do both is how they judge you Um, but they're willing to allow you to have some um, equity risk like I'd say 20 or 30% of equity risk in your total risk Um, as long as you don't fall as much as the equity market in a bad environment so in April last year and then you know whenever it was September 2008 they didn't want you to add to the pain that they were getting from their from their equity portfolios and luckily I would say well I hope not luckily we didn't add to their pain and most macro people did reasonably well in those environments so they're willing to forgive you for not matching equity gains in the rampant bull market, as long as you don't match the losses in the bear market and net net reduce their volatility.
0: I've noticed that uh, a lot of multi-asset uh, investors will you know, will typically invest uh, let's call it five or ten percent of their portfolio into a macro strategy or a CTA, hoping that that will buffer the portfolio. Is that a big enough allocation? Is that going to move the it, needle?
1: Uh, it depends on the volatility of the five percent, right? So if you put a if you put five or ten percent in a standard macro fund with relatively low vol, I mean like an eight vol or something or a ten vol. I mean, the arithmetic will tell you that in a big bear market, it it isn't going to make that much difference. But it's better than nothing, by the way, Mm -hmm. Um, because it probably will protect the portfolio to some extent. Um, So it's a matter of your risk aversion. You know, if if you're more risk averse, you'll have more of the asset that is negatively correlated with your main asset. Um, And, you know... Uh, that's up to you the other thing I would say though is that people tend to look at this as if it's how much of a global macro hedge fund strategy or CTA hedge fund strategy do you want to put into a portfolio of equities and bonds and that is is very much segmenting the value of macro into one corner of the portfolio right I think a different way of doing it is to allow macro thinking, macro modeling to influence the whole of your asset allocation. So you permeate through, and particularly your tail hedging, and you then permeate macro type thinking, and I would hope some of the the negative um, correlation benefits um, of macro more widely in your portfolio, but you don't do it. Necessarily through buying a macro fund, so there are there are different ways of doing it. For me, five percent isn't enough, but you know I would think that, uh, and I think people tend to believe that vehemently after a bear a bear phase, <laughs> uh, and less vehemently after a bull phase. Natural yes. human being uh, response.
0: Yes, we all like to revise history, but uh, as you brought out. Uh, An excellent point about using a macro fund as a way to bring macro thinking into your overall investment process and we used to do that at the superannuation fund where we worked we had we had several um macro and multi-asset and cta strategies and by looking at how these managers who are all very different from each other how they present position their portfolio and how their allocation shifted, we brought that information into our own investment process. Mm -hmm. And that was a big part of the way we thought about that allocation is they weren't just giving us alpha or returns, they were teaching us as well.
1: Well, we would, you know, I think teaching is, for me, is a bit of an arrogant way of putting it. I, I wouldn't use the word teaching. But we hope to help our clients, especially some of the biggest ones, actually, think about markets more broadly using some of our models, some of our trading experience. Um, and then they are the ones who will implement some of those, you know, ways of thinking into, into their whole portfolio. The other thing that we are now doing as well is we are developing models that integrate um, economic variables and markets, as well as we, you know, as well as we can do it. This is something we've tried to do multiple for multiple years, um, but we think we're making some progress. And I always tell, I always tell my my team. So I always tell them, you know, actually, guys, the most important thing in the in the world is to know what the equity weight should be. That's what clients are worrying about. Yes. Uh, And then, you know, they would tend to say to me, well, Model X says it should be 30, Model Y says it should be 22, and Model Z says it should be minus 10. And I say, well, I don't want you to give me three numbers between (laughs) minus 10 and plus 30, gentlemen and ladies. I want you to give me one number. (laughs) <laughs> Give me the equity weight that the model, you know, says I should have, and we've finally settled that they can do that now. But of course, it is it is different for people, for clients with different risk aversion. That's understandable, and yes. actually, age age as well, which affects risk aversion. But within that, we've begun now to see a way of producing a preferred equity weight from our models, which, which we're excited about because now we can build asset allocation models more more readily from uh, from our econometric work.
0: Yes. I, I, the way I always thought about it was there was four questions that I had to get right if I could, and yeah. that's hard. One was the equity weight. Yeah. Um, the second one, as an Australian investor because of our tax laws and dividend franking, was the split between Aussie shares and global. Yeah. Uh, especially yeah. when you're running a retirement portfolio. The third one was the currency because the currency is our greatest risk mitigant as an Australian investor. You know, when the Aussie dollar sells off, it does far more to buffer portfolio volatility than bonds could ever do.
1: Yeah.
0: Um Conversely, for most of its history, it's given you a positive carry. So there was always this trade-off between the diversification benefit and the
1: exactly the
0: yield pickup. So that was an exactly. important one. And then the final one was the duration of your bond portfolio. It was getting those four things right that kept me busy all the time, or trying to get them right. Um, no, th-
1: those are all still absolutely the key things, and um, you know they will wait differently according to what's happening in the world and what's happening in the markets at any given time and which country you're looking at to. but but basically you're right i mean those are the things that will determine most of an of, of a multi-asset portfolio and then within that there'll be lots of other stuff you need to do as well if you can mm-hmm. like picking stocks etc sure but that's why i believe in macro daniel it's because you've just named the big macro things yeah,
0: how do you um, how do you bring politics into it now? Because I I, you know, I can't help but feeling that politics is going to be a bigger part of this, and yeah. historically fund managers have shied away from that, and they've kind of you know they've they've chalked the big political event almost up to you know, re- luck or wow. there's no way we could have forecast that. Yes. But it seems like you can't get away from it these days. So how do you uh, bring it into your process?
1: Well, there's forecasting it and reacting to it. Those, those mm. I think, are two different things. I mean, two of the very, very big political disruptions we've had in the last six or seven years have not really been forecastable. So, one, Brexit. Until the very moment at 10 p.m. that night, I didn't think the Brexit vote was going to go in favor of brexit and until halfway through the night on donald trump's election night i didn't think he'd win right so there's forecasting which there are ways of trying to improve but then there's reacting and and getting the response right has to be quick because a lot of the response to the brexit vote happened of course through the pound that night mm. And a lot of the response of the markets to Donald Trump happened pretty quickly within days. Now, the Trump one was really interesting because most people said, oh, Trump has won. This is disastrous for
0: equities. Sell everything and move to Canada. Sell everything (laughs) and
1: move to Canada. Now, I can claim I didn't think that. And one of the reasons that I didn't actually was I remembered Reagan winning. It took a lot longer in those days. But everyone thought, Reagan? This guy, what is he? He's an actor. Come, Comes out of Hollywood, does cowboy movies. This is a disaster, right? And, of course, it certainly was not. Um, and I thought that about Trump. I thought some of the things he wants to do, like cut taxes on corporate America, are going to be very favorably... Uh, welcomed by equity investors. So it always seemed to me that that knee-jerk was wrong about Trump. So it's, it's trying to understand the politics, but if not, then at least react to them appropriately, yeah. I would say. But they are big play. Look, the, the now, for example, how are President Biden and Xi Jinping going to rebuild the relationship between china and the united states as hopefully they both have kind of seen they want they would like to i'm hoping that's a heck of a big that's a heck of a big question for markets and look the whole climate policy th- this is the biggest it may well be the biggest question not just for us as the the human race, but definitely as investors this could be the biggest question of all and that's going to have a lot of politics wrapped into it so I've never taken the view that we must not take politics into account even though it's hard to predict it
0: you've you've touched on two topics that I'm particularly interested in that I'd like to get your thoughts on so one is this relationship with China you know, are we Already in a, a kind of a cold war with China, you've got Australia purchasing nuclear submarines from Britain or the US. We're not sure who yet, and yeah. you've got obviously all the hijinks in the uh, South China Sea and yeah. flyovers in Taiwan and cyber espionage and all of these things. Is there already a, a cold war with China, and and what risk might that pose to markets?
1: You know, I think there are some elements of it. I mean. The two nations have become competitors in technology, for sure. And that has become more pronounced. The competition element has become more pronounced, I would say. And the protection element has become more pronounced, both in the United States and in in China. And obviously, the two nations are now adopting tariffs against each other on the trading front. Um, so are trying to build their economies a bit more separately from each other than in the past, so those things are just facts of life i mean that 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 is happening. two great powers that are nearly similar in size economically are kind of likely to have those competitions uh, between them and and concerns about each other um, whether that is going to turn into something a lot more sinister, uh, you know, I'm hopeful the answer to that is no. Um, Xi Jinping is clearly very concerned about Taiwan, and it would be wrong to ignore that. But my assumption is that he will continue to build the pressure in a way that steps a little bit short of threatening to bring the United States directly into a conflict in the South China Sea. Um, in his mind, he's always talking about 2049. That's a long, you know, that, that's quite a distance away. And at the moment, I think it's pressure building rather than anything more disruptive. But of course, accidents can happen. And, you know, I'd therefore need to worry about it and watch it, but with the hope, with, a I would say, a strong hope that it doesn't turn into anything much worse than the current. In terms of the economic Cold War, I mean, that was at its worst, I would say, in the middle period of Trump. It hasn't improved under Joe Biden. Joe Biden has not been very... You know, he hasn't thought in a, in a very constructive way about reducing tariffs but last thing I would say maybe America's beginning to think that those tariffs should be unwound now because they are inflationary and Joe Biden's biggest worry for sure um, ahead of the midterms next year is that the inflation rate will stay at six or seven in which case I think he's going to really suffer a big loss in Congress. So it's possible, I'm kind of hopeful, that they'll start to unwind some of those tariffs. We'll see. Mm
0: -hmm. You also mentioned climate as being a risk. Um, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on how that might affect asset markets um, and how you bring that into your thinking about macro investing?
1: Well, so, you know, there, there's lots of – there's a great deal to, to say here. So just in brief, I mean, number one is most of our clients are demanding now, not requesting, um, strategies that are climate-friendly from their, from their investment teams. And maybe 10 years ago you could say, well, macro doesn't do a lot of, you know, investing in things that are related to climate you can't say that now the the clients want you to have a strategy that helps the climate actively and so we're you know we've been thinking a great deal about that we've implemented some of that both with a with a independent climate fund uh, and in the implementation of our macro strategies more generally um, and I think that's great, and I think it's actually impacting. I do think this is impacting the cost of capital for carbon companies, and that is having an effect on, um, on future production of, of, of carbon. Um, so there's that facet to it. And then the other facet is, yeah, okay, and what will those policies to control and cl- improve the climate do to the economy? what will they you know what will those strategies do to inflation and what will there be a supply shock like there was in the 70s because carbon prices rise like they did in the 70s and i think this is we're seeing this actually happen now you know the the natural gas phenomenon that we saw in 2021 to some extent the oil price behavior we're now seeing um is raising too. The, Cole, of course yes yeah. is raising the question is climate policy going to impose a supply shock on the world economy if so how big when will that supply shock be mitigated by offsetting policy action elsewhere um, and they, this is going to have a very big effect on the path for growth and inflation in the major economies and therefore clearly i think in the in the financial asset markets as well and it's a we haven't really had to focus very much attention on that as global macro investors from a long time now there've been flare ups like there you know there in the oil market on let's say six occasions lasting a year at a time, inherently temporary. But this is different, and I think it requires better and deeper knowledge about climate policy and about the way energy markets work. Um, You know, for example, the pricing of emission permits, all of those types of things that we've not had to focus on. So it's working in both directions. We have to have strategies of our own to help the climate and we have to understand climate policy in order to understand markets. And I think this is undoubtedly going to be the biggie for the next, you know, period of time for sure.
0: I I would agree and I'd I'd certainly agree on your point that uh, clients are very, very focused on this, um, particularly – uh, some of the high net worth clients that I used to deal with in previous roles. Uh, a, a lot of them are looking for ways in which they can not only address climate in their portfolio, but also have an impact uh, on on the, the environment, looking for strategies that do that. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. Uh, I mean, the the change there is palpable. You know, you can see it in every meeting with clients, Um, and our former um, governor of the central bank in the UK, the Bank of England, Mark Carney, has been really good on all of this. I mean, both as a central banker and now as a climate policymaker. He's been great, actually, and has led the process of getting capital provision in the world financial markets to be more climate-friendly, um, and I was, I was I was reading in a report by the IEA the other day, which said that so, something like because you know in part because of these changes to capital provision and the willingness of banks and bond uh, owners uh, holders to provide capital to to um, to carbon uh, production, we're now. Uh, investing about half in carbon production and uh, exploration as we were in the last recovery period in 2014 and they said that should sustain um, carbon output about 30% below current levels by 2030 that was their conclusion because we are under-investing, you know, in carbon in order to maintain um, the current production rates. Now, we're not cutting demand, as far as I can see, by that amount, or anywhere near that amount. So, we're run- We're going to run into a period of carbon shortage in markets, I think. And maybe that's a great thing for the climate, Probably, almost certainly is, it's going to potentially mean higher carbon prices. But it's not so great for the rest of the economy. We're going to have to live with that somehow and figure it out and figure out what the market consequences are. So these are big changes that are not that far away and are already happening through our financial system's correct attempts to help solve the carbon crisis.
0: Mm -hmm. Looks like we've got... uh a lot of a lot of big things to to discover um, over the the coming months and years just before we finish up i'd like to change pace a little bit and uh, I believe you are a long term Southampton football club fan correct <laughs> I'm hoping you can clear something up for me so i have I have fond Memories of watching Matt Leticia play Everyone, for Southampton and uh, pretty much carrying the team in some ways. He, really? was, uh, he was he uh, was he was special, but for some reason he could never translate that success onto the international stage.
1: Well, he wasn't picked. Come on, Daniel.
0: Why do you he think was that was?
1: Picked. I I would hesitate to point out that the manager of England at the time. Was Glenn Hoddle, who was the second greatest ball player, <laughs> English ball player, of my lifetime. Right, with Matthew being the the best, the number one. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I have no idea why Glenn Hoddle didn't want to demonstrate that on the international stage, but he didn't. Um, mm. No, look, it's ridiculous. I think Matt played six times for England. He should have played sixty.
0: Mm.
1: He scored two hundred and nine top-level goals, playing for a team that never finished above 15th. Mm -hmm.
0: From the midfield, too.
1: I mean, he was absolutely uh, a different kettle of fish. I'm not sure he could play today because he just didn't move move much
0: around the pitch. Well, that was always the criticism that he was lazy. He didn't have the work rate.
1: He did a lot of work between his ears in his mind, (laughs) you you know. And uh, all the great players do that. He he didn't. He wasn't that mobile. I have to give you. I have to give you that. <laughs> and his his ability to crunch tackle an opposing midfield player wasn't the best either. But putting the ball in the net, he could do that. You know that's part of the game too.
0: It, it's funny. You you it reminds me a little bit because I was a, also a big Italian soccer fan, and I remember in the nineties there was very much this fashion away from. In, in Italy, that we'd call somebody like uh, Letizia, uh literally in English would be a three-quarter man. So not quite yeah. a forward, not quite a, a midfielder. Yeah. And in the nineties, there was this big move away from that style of play. I think it was maybe because Sacchi had such success at Milan with a four-four-two and you know yeah. very sort of formulaic system type play. And you know the the You had a lot of players like that in Italy, like uh, Baggio, for example, that didn't really fit and sort of bounced around from club to club because the manager never really wanted to use them uh, within that system. And I remember reading a story um, that Carlo Ancelotti wrote when this is before he went on to become as successful as he was in, in Real Madrid and in Italy, uh, when he was a new manager in Parma, he had the chance to acquire Baggio, And he looked at him and he said, look, it just doesn't fit my system. Mm-hmm. Um, and he passed. And then he saw that he went to Bologna and scored 20 goals. Yeah. And he realized it was the, probably the, the dumbest mistake he'd made in his career because, you know, for the sake of being you know, too rigid, he, he cost himself 20 goals.
1: Yeah. Well I think there were some managers that thought the same about Matt. And that was perhaps why he stayed with us. But listen, he single handedly kept us in the prem in the premiership for about a decade on his own. Mm. I mean <laughs> there's no debating it.
0: Incredibly exciting <laughs> to watch, I remember.
1: Oh incredible to watch. Anyway, it's no coincidence that my third child was called Matthew. <laughs> so <laughs> very good i I didn't tell i didn't tell sue my wife why i like the the name matthew
0: well it's it's a nice name anyway if it was something (laughs) a bit more esoteric or or strange (laughs) maybe you wouldn't have been able to get away with it
1: No, i know i think that too
0: (laughs) (laughs) well gavin it's been a pleasure talking markets and and macro and hearing your story from government to goldman to fulcrum um Thank you for joining us on the the podcast.
1: Thanks for your time, Daniel. It's been great talking to you.
0: Hopefully, we can do it again soon. Hope so. And I, I do hope you get to see the ashes.
1: Ah, <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: you've blown it
0: now. <laughs> bye, bye, bye. Podcast is for informational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice or take into account the particular investment objectives, financial situations, or needs of individual listeners. Listeners should consider whether any opinions or recommendations in this podcast are suitable for their particular circumstances and, if appropriate, seek professional advice including tax advice.